We've been doing a series from Second Peter, and today we reach chapter three, chapter three of Second Peter. And chapter three actually begins by saying, uh, "This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved." And both of them, I'm stirring stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So I'm going to call Peter the repeater. I hope he doesn't mind me calling that. But he is reminding us that he's reminding us. And so if he's going to remind us, I think it's a good thing for us to take a reminder of what was said in chapter 1 and chapter 2 before we get to chapter 3. All right, so chapter 1, if you remember, was what? It was about authentic Christianity, being an authentic Christian. And so he says, one of the things that you do is to supplement your faith. That's in verse 5. For this reason, he says, and then he goes on to say to supplement your faith. So the question you ask is, what is that reason? He's already given that in the first, uh, from verse 3 and verse 4, the two verses, the verses above. Three things. One, that we are granted life and godliness, all things that we require, everything. If you want to live a holy life, a godly life, it's been given to you. Second, you've been made partakers of his divine nature. And third, it says that you have escaped the corruption in the world because of its sinful desire, verse 4. So these are three reasons, and, and it goes on to say that you need to supplement your faith. But then he says, how do you supplement the faith? And that's a question. And then he continues to answer that from verse 5 to verse 7. Uh, Peter's already told right at the beginning that the faith that you have is the same faith that I've got. There's no difference in this base model. But we need to supplement the faith. And he gives seven progressive steps. He says, to this faith, I want you to add virtue. To virtue, I want you to add knowledge. To knowledge, you add uh, uh, self-control. Self-control, you add steadfastness. Steadfastness, you add brotherly affection. Brotherly affection, love. You, this is the build that he's asking us to do in those verses. But then he also says, what is the result when you do this, when you build on your faith? At verse 8, that if these are your qualities and increasing, you will not be ineffective and unfruitful. So you, you, know, so you got the reason why we need to build on the fruit, on the faith, sorry. And then he goes on in the next two verses. He says, what if you're lacking? If you don't have this, if you're not building on this, what does that mean? And he says, you're then blind as a bat. And um, like the Dora in Finding Nemo. Well, he didn't, Peter didn't really say that. But I'm thinking that, you know, if KJV were written today, probably they would have said, you're blind as a bat and like Dora. He says, you, you become blind, cannot see, and you've forgotten that you've been cleansed. That's what Peter is saying. We've forgotten if we don't have this, then we, are, uh, then we have forgotten. And what he's therefore trying to say is get off the edge. Don't just say, hey, I've got faith, and you're you know, tottering at the end. Like this, get off the edge. As you build, you come right off. And so when, you're, when you've really built 
on the faith, you become effective and fruitful. And later he says, you will not fall. You will not fall. And these are the things that you have to do. And then you get to chapter 2. That was chapter 1. All right, now chapter 2. So if chapter 1 was authentic Christianity, chapter 2 is about counterfeit Christianity. I know a chap- tap- chapter talks about, you know, what a false teacher looks, uh, uh, does and looks like, but we also saw that it's a good template to know what a counterfeit Christian is all about. So you have authentic Christianity, and Peter then brings in, in chapter 2, what a counterfeit Christian looks like. In verse 2, he says, uh, the way of truth is blasphemed because of them. And you think about it, really, isn't it sad? Those many of us who call themselves Christian, but by the way they behave, as a result of that, the way of truth is blasphemed. Not just the way of truth, but the one who is the way and the truth is also being blasphemed. The counterfeit Christian. And what is the prevention We spoke about it last week. It says don't compartmentalize your faith. Don't put your faith in a box in in certain areas. Uh, The best analogy that I can think about is if you were to, to go into homes of people who follow these Eastern religions, they have this one room or this one area where they put all their idols. They are very reverential. They come there, they worship, they do everything, and then they shut the door, walk away, and there's nothing in their life that indicates that they were so prayerful just a second ago. And sometimes we have built for ourselves these virtual rooms. We have this Sunday morning Christian attitude that we put these in compartments and we don't let it impact and affect the rest of our lives. And Peter is saying your faith must seep into every aspect of your life. Otherwise, it's not faith. You'll be in a counterfeit. That we don't put them in in a box, because he ends the chapter by saying what these false teachers do and what counterfeit Christians would do is like you're like a dog who goes to the corruption that comes from within and goes and laps up the vomit. Or you're like the pig who goes seeking for the filth on the outside and wallows on that, both from the inside and from the outside. A great warning, lest we be that. And so, um, when we get to chapter 3, the real issue as to what he's addressing becomes clear, and um, uh, the issue is about the return of Jesus Christ. He actually begins his defense in chapter 1, verse 16. I want you to turn to that. Chapter 1, verse 16, it says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when uh, we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gets to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is a full-blown argument that Peter is giving that Jesus Christ is coming. Jesus Christ is coming. And so the question we ask is, what were these false teachers teaching? Like, why is this, you know, that Peter is getting so riled up? Verse 4 of chapter 3 
They say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. It says, hey, nothing's changing. It's just the same. And all that you talk about is just a myth. But what, what does Peter call it? Peter calls it in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, these are destructive heresies, even denying their master. Paul actually puts it in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. It says, because of such destructive heresies, some have shipwrecked their faith. Some have shipwrecked their faith. And uh, as we read this chapter 3, we saw that Peter actually drags Paul into the argument. He says, it seems like Peter is dissing Paul, saying that Paul's letters are hard to understand and, and they you know, convolute the scripture to their own destruction. And Paul is saying, hey, why did you bring me in? But there's a reason. Because the false teachers, and this is in reading as we see that the false reading, uh, the false teachers were twisting the teaching of Paul. Let me... Uh, let me, uh, if, if we won't turn to that, but one of the things if we can take and then we, we can understand what's happening is Colossians chapter 2 verse 12. In Colossians 2 12, uh, it, it reads, you were buried with him through baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith. You were raised with him in faith. And so false teachers were saying this, that, hey, listen, if you are raised like Christ, you know for, for now it's only a spiritual raising that you have experienced. And if that is so, then Christ has not had a bodily resurrection. His was also a spiritual one. And if it's his spiritual one, then his bodily return, your bodily resurrection, and the ensuing judgment is of no consequence. It's not going to happen. And so what you do in your body, that's okay. You can do what you want in your body, is what the false teachers were saying. And Paul had to write about it. Peter had to write about it, saying that no. No. And so, therefore, the caution as he comes to chapter 3. And they can't, the the uh, caution that Peter gives is that these counterfeit Christians, these false teachers, they're deliberate in overlooking two things. In verse 5 of chapter 3, it's the punishment of God. God has punished the ancient world already using the, uh, using the water through flood. And then you get to verses 8 to 9. Now, earlier he says the punishment of God. Now he's talking about the patience of God. And the patience of God, just being, because you think he's being slow, it's not that he is slow, but because you think it is slow to his promise, I want you to understand that it is his patience. It is his patience. And so then he goes on to say, listen, two things. This day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. And this day of the Lord, in verse 11, because it's coming soon, we Christians who follow Christ, who believe in Christ, and his second coming, it says we need to live this life of holiness and godliness. And so this coming of the Lord 
is therefore the theme of chapter 3 and what that means to us. And so we picked verse 11 and 12 as our key verses. Let me read that to you, verses 11 and 12. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, godliness, sorry, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? What sort of people ought we to be? in lives of holiness and godliness. And so, so then let's look at this chapter, right? So the, I hope you get the context as to where we are. So now, uh, what I want to do is this chapter, I want to divide that into three parts. I want to call it the delay, the day, and the danger. The delay, the day, and the danger. We'll quickly go through it, and we'll pause at one place, which which will be our lesson for today, all right? The delay, verses 1 to 9, is the delay. The Lord's promise. Peter is saying, I want to remind you again. Let me remind you again. Peter says, let me remind you again that he is coming. It's his promise. What he promises, he will keep. It's his promise. And I think about this. Peter is saying so many times, and I, you know, I play this in my head. It's like some of our teenagers, when they leave their home, and the mom or the dad shouts out and says, listen, have you bundled yourself? It's cold outside. And they call out and say, yeah, mom, I heard you. And they step out the house in a spring jacket without toque and mitts. That's the danger. When we hear it so many times, when I hope, and I hope and I pray that we are not of those. That we understand that the Lord is coming and that his patience, if it's slow of promises, what do you think? It's, it's his patience. As we will see that it leads to salvation. It's for salvation so that so that, so that we would be saved. And in, and in uh, verse 8, it says, one day is like a thousand years. Uh, that's a figure of speech. I hope you understand that, right? Because he's referencing Psalm 90 in verse 4. It says, for a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. What Peter is saying, what uh, is echoing, what Psalmist is saying, is a God who's out of time. Don't hold the... Put him in a box of a time. For him, this thousand years is just like the watch of a night that's just gone by. So it's not the delay of his promise, but because of his patience. Shift your vision, see the reason. And so, in verse 9, it says, Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, I want you to understand the tension out here. And I know there are some of us here who've been praying for their brothers and sisters and parents and, you know, our extended families that they would come to know the Lord. And we are, we are thankful that the Lord has not come because there's another day, another minute, another hour, whatever there is before the Lord comes. We are so thankful. 
and that they would come into, into this same experience that God has brought us. And yet in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, it says that we, are, we love his appearance. We're waiting eagerly for his coming. Why? Because his name will no longer be cussed. His name will be the name to which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And I don't want my, the name of my Lord to be dragged in mud as sometimes I see in the street corners or in the offices. And so I, I want him to come so that his will on earth would be done as it's in heaven. And so this tension, thankful that we have another day to speak and to preach and to tell, and yet longing for her soon return. And so we get to the second part, verse, verses 10 to 13, the day. And Peter, therefore, says, be prepared. Be prepared. It's his patience, not his slowness. And it says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, verse 10. I want you to understand, it's the timing that is unexpected, not the confidence of his return. It is, we don't know when he's coming, but we know he will come. And... Peter, therefore, uses the same illustration that Jesus uses in Matthew 24. But I've always stopped to ask myself, why is this negative connotation given? Why would the Lord say that his return would be like that of a thief? And I want you to understand that there are two parts to this imagery. The one is in the, in the suddenness of the intrusion, the suddenness of his coming. We don't know when the thief is going to come. Unlike some of the movies, we say, all right, we're going to do it at some sort of time, and everybody is like, you know, okay, and they pull another prank somewhere. But no, this, this is about the fact that we don't know the time, and therefore it's like the coming of a thief. But not just in the suddenness of the intrusion, but also the following judgment and the, and the destruction. Because when a thief comes, that's going to happen. And so, we, we see the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. But what's interesting is, uh, when uh, Peter gives this, he, in verse 10, he calls it the day of the Lord. In verse 12, he says the, the day of God. And then in verse 18, he calls it the day of eternity. Now, verse 18, day of eternity, is in a, different, in a slightly different context. We'll see that when we get to that. But Paul, in Thessalonians and, and Philippians, he, he uses the way, a word, a day of Christ. And so, so sometimes they try to show that the day of Christ is not the same as the day of the Lord. And in my understanding, in my learning, I see this as the same. Now, I see this as the two sides of a coin, True that the usage of day of Christ as 
in Philippians and in Thessalonians, it seems like all the good things that are going to happen. And every time the day of the Lord, not every time, there's a, in fact, there are some where uh, it changes, but the day of the Lord generally is all about judgment and destruction. So it, it seems like they are two different, but it's really the two sides of the coin. Because it says one is the outpouring of divine wrath on God's enemies. And the second is a divine blessing about God's people. And so therefore, even though Peter doesn't bring here, because Peter is trying to talk about the counterfeit Christians. He's talking about the ones who are not waiting. And so he brings this analogy of a thief, but, but the Lord Jesus Christ and also Paul bring in another analogy of, if you remember, new birth a travail of a woman. Let me read to you that verse from John chapter 16, verse 21. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a, that a child has been born into the world. And I won't read the one that Paul brings in, but I want you to understand that for some, the day of the Lord, the coming of the day of the Lord would be like the coming of a thief. It will definitely be sudden in its intrusion, but it will be destruction and judgment. But to us who believe in Jesus Christ, who've been saved, it, to us it will be a day that we are so anticipating loving his appearance. The coming of the Lord. But I took for myself this thing as our key words, where from 11 to 13 it says, so that what sort of a people ought we to be so that we wait and hasten the coming of the Lord? And I read that and it says, what is Peter trying to tell us? You see, the Lord Jesus Christ has already said that, that the hour and the day of the coming of the Son of Man, no one knows, not even the angels, but only... The, only my father in heaven, not even the son of man. What Jesus was saying is that while he was on, on the earth in this incarnate uh, and in submission to the father, he had, he had placed all his uh, awareness of you know, future and knowledge to what father had revealed him. But the, the fact of the matter is the time and the hour is already fixed. So how was it that there would be a hastening of his coming. That's intriguing. And so, so what I'd like us to do in these verse 11, 12, and 13, answer the three questions I wanted to raise for myself and for ourselves. And in verse 11, it says, what does a life of holiness and godliness look like? So verse 11, it says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So that's the first question. The second question is, how do we wait and hasten the day of the Lord? Verse 12, it says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. And then verse 13, the question I want to ask myself, and I, uh, if you will give me the liberty to ask you, is are you waiting for the heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells? So the question one, a life of holiness 
and godliness, a life of holiness and godliness. Well, it's important that we understand these terms, right? Like, what is holiness and what is godliness? Why is he bringing two different things? Now, I don't want to bring in the way the two verses are being used in two different places, but I want you to, I want, because in some places they're interchanged, uh, but I do want to bring in the, the usage, the, the way it is used, not just the verses, all right? So the first one gives us the meaning that we would be set apart by God. We're set apart by God. We've been looking at that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, and God is bringing, the Holy Spirit is bringing our attention back to that, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we would be found holy and blameless before him. So holiness is something that God is doing to us, and God is doing in us, and God is doing for us, and he sets us apart. What a privilege, what a joy. We already considered that. So not just that we are set apart by God, the second meaning would be that we are set apart for God, that we set ourselves apart for God. We read that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. You shall be holy, for I am holy. I want us to understand there's nothing that we can do to add to holiness. But we are to practice, make this a practice, make this subjective, real in our lives. We can never be more holy than what God has already made us. But in other the... uh, the sad part is that we can be one without the other. We can be set apart by God and yet not exhibit our life which rallies his call. Or we could be so holy on the outside through our activities and make people believe that everything is okay, but there's just no transforming power of God in our lives. That's the sad part, and because of that, there's hypocrisy that becomes evident, and by which the name, the the way of the truth gets blasphemed, as we see. And so, if we've been set apart by God, it it is mandated that we show this holiness in our life. And how does that look? Jerry Bridges, in his book, a godliness, something more than Christian character. He writes this, to ingrain his way into our pattern of living so thoroughly that it becomes habitual for we might, or we might say, the first nature. Our holiness would become our first nature. It's in Romans 12 where we say that we would offer our lives a living sacrifice that we have given ourselves up and says, God, you can do what you want with this life. It's yours. I set myself apart for you. In my conversations, in my careers, in my whatever it be, wherever you place me, that I'd be a sacrifice for you. Just want to read three quick verses which show us how this holiness can be practiced. The first thing is holiness 
is to be pursued. It's to be desired. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness. Listen to this, brothers and sisters. And holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then it says, holiness requires training. It needs to be consistent. You need to be on it. It's like us who've take, taken up this membership for, for the gym but never get on and going there. It, does, it shouldn't happen. Holiness requires training. Timothy was told, train yourself to be godly. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. And Hebrews 5.14, it says, those who are mature, they train themselves through regular practice to discern what is good and evil. It requires a practice. We also see that as a task of the elders, of the pastors, of the church leaders. In Galatians 4.19, it says, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. That's the prayer of every under-shepherd, of every church leader, that Christ would be formed in you. that we who are being made the partakers of his divine nature, that it would be evidenced in this life that we live. And people can see that. And so there's this motivation to be holy. Kevin DeYoung, he is one of the pastors in, in down south in, in the U.S. He says, I see in Second Peter alone 20 motivations to be holy. 20 motivations. It creates, creates a thirst for God. We were talking about it in, uh, in our Wednesday meeting, uh, and at that time I had forgotten the reference. Refer the reference is Psalm 42. You know what Psalm 42 says? As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Oh, this, this hunger, this thirst. Nothing else attracts me as wanting to go and meet with you, oh my God, is what the psalmist is saying. Holiness attracts holiness, and it must. But God disciplines those that we may share in his holiness. We read that in Hebrews 12 and 10. God disciplines us for a good that we may share in his holiness. So we are thankful for such discipline. And so how do we hasten the day of the Lord? That's the second question. Uh, how do we hasten? We, 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 it's given, the clue is given in this passage. It says, through the lives of holiness and godliness, verse 11 and 12, lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the Lord. And so I had to pause and ask myself, you know, how does that impact God's sovereignty? What does that really mean? So if I don't live lives of holiness and godliness, is God not going to come back? The Lord not going to come back? Can I impede God? May it not be. May it never be. It can never be. But I want you to understand this divine tension that is happening in this verse. It says, we wait for and hasten the coming. 
This divine tension, as I understand, is we wait because it's the Lord who has promised. And we wait for him as he is going to come because he promised he will come. And then yet we hasten because of the lives that we say, I want to live for you, Lord. See, I really sometimes think that, I, I, you know, how does that really hasten? I, I, I want to admit, I fully don't understand. How, how is it that I hasten the coming of the Lord through my life? And yet this I know, that everything that excites me and eagerly expecting and waiting, there is this sense of hastening that I experience in my life. It's no more like the Sunday afternoon waiting constantly for that five o'clock to come and never comes. It's not that there's a sense of, uh, sense of expectation, this, this excitement that it's going to happen very soon. That's for sure. And so... We wait and hasten the coming of the Lord. Now, I'm thankful how the Bible ends in uh, the passage in 22, uh, Revelation 22 and verse 20. It says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. And the response is, come. Come, Lord Jesus. So the question is, really, I'll be waiting and if we are waiting, what is our true motivation? What, what is it that we are waiting? Well, if we were to be dragged into a court, would we show evidence through our lives that we, through our lives and choices and all of that, that we, there's enough evidence to implicate us as ones who, who are waiting, waiting and hastening the coming of the Lord? And now think about it. If you were to be taken to the divine court, would the Lord find you faithful as ones who are waiting and hastening for the coming of the Lord? Now think about the attraction that I have in this world. There's only this one attraction. This one attraction is for an authentic Christian is that we would live this life of holiness and godliness because verse 13 says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for that new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That my attraction is that I would live this life of holiness and godliness whereby we hasten his coming. That he would be glorified, every knee would bow, every tongue confess. We come towards the last passage, the danger, as we call verse 14 to verse 18. And it's a good reminder that we would count the patience of our Lord as salvation. The patience of our Lord as salvation. It's an opportunity for saving salvation. It's an opportunity for sanctifying salvation. It's an opportunity is to relook to our lives and say, Lord, I need you. I'm messed up. I want to come into this family. Oh, to say, Lord, I'm desperate. I'm falling. I've fallen. Lord, I need to come back. That my life would be of holiness and godliness just as you intend for me to live. And so in verse 14, 15 to 17, and verse 18, he lists three responses. One is be diligent. 
that we will be found in him without spot and blemish, verse 14, and at peace. Spot is something on the outside, blemish is something, a defect of a character of the person, and that we would be without spot or blemish. Jude, in, in his chapter, he calls these false teachers as ones who, with spot and blemishes in your love feast. And so we are not, we're not those. In verse 15 and 17, it says that we would be stable. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with error of lawless people and lose your own stability. And therefore, as Peter had said initially, as you supplement your faith, you're not tottering at the edge, trying to reach out and, and to have that, you know, the, the, the desires and the lust of the world so that you would you, you could be at arm's length to that. But as you build your faith, as you move away, to faith you add virtue, and to virtue you add knowledge, to knowledge you add self-control, steadfastness, brotherly affection and love, it will prevent you from falling. You know, the wonderful part about this is that this knowledge that Peter is asking us uh, to add to our faith, it does not puff up. It does not make us superior. If it does, then you're on the wrong track of the knowledge. This track of knowledge will, will make you fall in love, the brotherly affection and love. And that's a good track record. The more we know, are we becoming more arrogant and you know, self-righteous, or does that make us as ones who fall in love with our brothers and sisters, because we love our God. And then it says in verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It also ends with that doxology, doesn't it? To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. There's no better response as you think about the Lord and, as, uh, and in addition as you think that he is going to come back for us. Our hearts left in praise and in worship. And I said, you know, the day of eternity really caught my attention. It just got, you know, I stopped there and said, wow, this is the best way to end that chapter. I know in some of your translations it says forever and ever. I forgot to see which versions they are. It seems like a fairy, uh, fairy uh, tale ending. It probably is the ending or the beginning, however you look, to the greatest story ever told. But I like the fact that it's called the day of eternity because one of the meanings, as Strong puts it, is that day where there is no crime, no vice, no sort of any nothing perpetrated except at night and in darkness. So this picture of this heavens and the earth where righteousness dwells, where righteousness dwells, Peter is saying, is like the day of eternity. You know, brothers and sisters, what that means, I'm not sure if you've ever had a day where you feel, oh, I hope this day doesn't end. This day will not. This day will not. It'll be the day where we can continue to enjoy and, and just gaze upon the glories of our Lord. No, why, no vice, no sorrow, no sickness, no tears, no nothing will take away, will, will, will hold anything to that day. So the coming of the Lord is an excitement for me. And I hope it is for all of us.
blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. If we don't have the assurance of Jesus as yours here, it's not a foretaste of the coming of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you mean to us. You who spared not your son, that we who were strangers alienated from the commonwealth of Israel to the covenants of promise. Lord, we, we were in this world without God and without Christ, as it says, Lord, that we would be brought in to be your children, brother, brothers and sisters, but as sons and daughters. Oh, Lord, we pray that, Lord, that if we are in either of these two camps, ones who don't know you at all or ones who, who just want to live tottering on the edge and just satisfied to get in by the skin of our teeth. We plead, Lord, that you would, you would lay hold of them. There would be maturity, that they would be adding on to supplement to that faith, that they would grow and mature, that the inner man would be strengthened, the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. And, and Lord, that the assurance of the, uh, in their heart would rise up to our praise of your soon coming where your name alone will be glorified among all peoples, Lord, every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that you are Lord. We thank you again. Thank you, Lord, for all that you mean to us. In Jesus Christ, the Lord's name, amen.